Uh, we'll actually pick up here this week in Mark chapter 2 at the end of chapter 2. And it's important to note uh, that this chapter is full of Jesus uh, kind of expressing who he is. Uh, and, and, and it's not going well <laughs> with some. Some are having a, a big problem with this. I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase, uh, when somebody shows you who they are, believe them. <laughs> Well, uh, in a similar sense, Jesus is showing or telling or revealing who he is to the religious leaders. And for whatever reason, they just can't believe it. They are struggling so much uh, to, to understand and to perceive what Jesus is communicating about himself. He keeps saying in this chapter two uh, who he is and they keep bringing these accusations and so we'll pick up at the end but you should know already in this chapter it starts off with Jesus healing a man and instead of saying hey you're healed he says your sins are forgiven <laughs> what like to the religious leaders it's, it's important to note that this group sees themselves as the last line of defense against this crazy roman or, or greco culture uh that's so humanistic that's pervading around that, that 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 it's a total different value system of how we see ourselves and our bodies and our intellect and and all of this and and these jewish leaders see themselves as like the conservative kind of last line of defense uh, to keep things from spiraling out of control. Israel especially, right, that deep within it, there's this, this fight back, this pushback to not let this sensual culture uh, come in and take over. And this is uh, some of the problem with these religious leaders. So when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, they have a problem. They're going, wait, who could forgive sin? Unless the sin was against you. How could this man forgive sin? And this is ultimately Jesus saying he's God. <laughs> that all sin is against him. And the chapter two begins with that Jesus forgiving sin. And then it's an accusation about, well, he hangs with sinners. <laughs> Why would he do that? Why would Jesus hang with sinners? Why would he consort with sinners? And then... After that, uh, Jesus' disciples aren't fasting like the Pharisees are. How dare they? <laughs> we, Detroit Church, are about to go into a fast this week. And as we uh, prepare our hearts for fasting, right, this, this incredible discipline that we're so thankful to have, this was actually a part of the accusation that they brought against Jesus. Well, your disciples don't fast. So he forgave sin, basically saying he's God, consorts with sinners. He reclines at the table with people that the religious leader would, would think, no, no one would, would sit with them. His disciples don't fast. That's an accusation against him that they aren't fasting like, like the Pharisees are, like John's disciples are. And now we get to the end of Mark chapter 2, and maybe something even more egregious than what's already been said happens as Jesus reveals even more of who he is. Let's take a look at it. In Mark chapter 2, verse 23, the Bible says this. Uh, One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what Jesus or David did, I'm sorry, when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time 
of Abiathar, the high priest, and he ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he also gave it to those who were with him. And then he helps us in case we're struggling with what he means by this. He tells us point blank, verse 27. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And then verse 28. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, here and now, that phrase might not hit, right? It might not cause vitriol and all of that for us here today. But for this group of people, this is a heavy, heavy statement. This man, he's saying, the son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath. He has all authority over the Sabbath. He's the one who defines it. He's the one who has created it. This is no small thing. This is no simple saying. Now, now for us to understand kind of what this means and the implications thereof, we kind of got to take a little bit of a step back and actually kind of go through this need for this deep sense of rest. It's been said that uh, REM is like the deepest level of sleep we can get, right? It's called rapid eye movement, and it is the deepest, the most replenishing, the most renewing uh, level of echelon of sleep that we can come into. It's where we receive our deepest rest as we sleep. And it acknowledges that it's possible for us to get sleep, but not necessarily get rest, it's possible for you and I to close our eyes, lay down, and not necessarily be replenished, not necessarily be restored or restored. So it speaks to something much greater, even in this particular context, because the truth is, while the disciples are using the Sabbath in this particular context, their, their utmost concern, right, isn't uh, the Sabbath, it's really the law. It's really using the law to come against Jesus' claims of who he says he is. That's why they'll use fasting. They'll use him hanging or reclining at the table with sinners, right? Because they're trying to disprove who he said he is and who he's revealing himself to be. So their issue really isn't even the Sabbath. Just for reference, uh, they made uh, extra laws to help keep the original Ten Commandments, right? And as it relates to work specifically, right, the Sabbath law was, which clearly stated that we were to abstain from all kinds of work. And they actually created up to 39 different activities that you could not do on the Sabbath, for it could be considered work. <laughs> and as they did this, uh, uh, as you can imagine, the uh, the 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 ultimate concept or the, the spirit of this law, which was about God's people having rest and, and being replenished and being restored, kind of got lost in the sauce in a sense. And then it became more about do's and don'ts, more about are you plucking heads of grain as you walk through a field in this particular situation. And this is where we kind of begin our, our conversation. Because ultimately what we're finding out, and I'm sure you probably already have found out, uh, that the quickest way to get a pulse or, or get your finger on the pulse of, of how you're doing, how you're maturing, uh, what life is like, how you're seeing things is clearly to come face to face with an absolute truth. <laughs> you want to see how you're doing? Well, we, we just sent out an email about this upcoming fast. 
And I don't know about you, but immediately the devil goes to work. The second I start reading restrictions, <laughs> the second I see the word, and I'm thinking, oh, okay, all right, now, what are we, what we going to give up? And I don't know about you, but, but it's, it's one thing when we get the prescriptions or the prescriptions about, you know, the fast and what we're going to abstain from together, almost like a baseline, right? But then there's always some things that the Holy Spirit just kind of flashes to my mind when I'm thinking about fasting. And I'll give you a hint. I never want to fast that stuff. <laughs> the second he fasts it, I'm like, well, I don't even do that that much. Like, that's not even coffee. I have like one, maybe two cups a day. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not having coffee at night. You know what I'm saying? It's just in the morning, kind of get things going. It's a part of my routine. And the Holy Spirit's so gentle. He doesn't fight. He doesn't go back and forth, right? He just, you know, well, that's, that's, that's something you might want to consider. I don't know about some of you, you know, maybe you, uh, uh, he brings to you certain scrolling, right? Certain websites, certain, uh, whether some of y'all might be IG, all right? Uh, I heard we, we have some TikTokers, They're talking to ticks and all that, right? He might bring that, then say, hey, for this next week, are you willing to lay that down? Are you willing to create a space that only I can feel? And the truth is, our need for rest is often exposed when we come up against some, something bigger than us, something heavier than us, something that we cannot simply overpower. And this reveals who and where we are. In the same sense, uh, 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 an easy way, like, you know, some of you take notes, some of you, you know, sitting on the couch with your family, and that's fine. But a couple of things that I would, I would ask is, how do you handle failure? How do you handle loss? How do you handle hurt? What about betrayal? Like how, what do you do when someone seems to betray your trust? What do you do when someone seems to be different than what you thought they were? See, this reveals our need for rest because whether you know it or not, all of us have coping mechanisms. All of us. And, 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 and I think, you know, because of psychologically, right, we, we, we kind of think of our coping mechanisms as like big things, like how we handle big trauma, abuse, uh, uh, job loss, right? Some, some heavy thing. But the truth is we cope even with small inconveniences. We cope uh, uh, where our, these mechanisms kick in just when we're discomforted. When we're uncomfortable, when we're disrupted, it, it starts to flare up and, 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 and what's going on deep within you starts to come to the surface. And, and whether you know it or not, all of us are going to deal with this human condition. And you say, well, what's the human condition? Is it loss? Is it failure? Is it hope deferred? Is it I, I wish for something and didn't get it? No, ultimately, it's the weight of your and my sin. All of us have to deal with it. All of us have to acknowledge that there is this residue of a heavenly space that we, we somehow remember, although we've not seen it, not been there in this life. But we, we, we have these, these kind of beckons and these callings out to a deep level of closeness and fellowship with the God of the universe. We want to be great and seen as good. We want to be those who who are intelligent and, and those who, who, have, who have put our talents to work and have, have gotten skills that have created for us a better future. It's natural. And the truth is our sin is something that all of us have to grapple with where we are now as opposed to 
where we think we should be, where we ought to be. Paul writes it, we quote it all the time, right? Oh, wretched man, right? The thing I want to do, I don't do. The thing I don't want to do, I do, right? Like all of us have to fight. If Paul has to fight it, all right. Now I know you think you're doing well. But if Paul had to wrestle with this, all of us do. And this reveals us. See, the truth is, uh, we're all going to deal with, with, with our, 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 our sin in a couple different ways. Now, some of us will become scorekeepers. Some of us will learn what to do to appear or even to become morally right. We will find out exactly what do we do. Okay, cool. Uh, Sunday school, that's what we need. All right, cool. I'm going to Sunday school. Oh, oh, uh, a Bible study too? Bet, I'm there. Now, I know we don't know anything about this here at Detroit Church. <laughs> I got a couple coaching people in the building. Uh, for us, it's as if they created a way for you to be at church at least five days out of the week. So for a lot of us, you didn't even question it. We went. I grew up in a, in a church uh, uh, that, that actually kind of uh, gave themselves this, this self-titled holiness church. Now, the thing about this, this holiness title that they so readily just accepted and kind of put on themselves is it gives the inclination or, or gives this inference that everything they do is holy. Or that because they don't drink or because uh, they don't curse or, or they don't do some of these other things that that uh, is to their uh, uh, check boxes or their score keep uh, has, has gone up. Right? Their score is a little higher because they don't do some of the stuff that other people do. And the truth is we do it in non-spiritual ways. We think ourselves better than people who think themselves better than people. I would never do that. This person's crazy. We struggle with forgiveness. Why? Because at the core, you would never do what they did. You would never say that. You would never do that. And yet, this other person has done it. There's two ways. One way is uh, we learn what the rules are. We learn how to manipulate them in our favor. We become scorekeepers. The second way we deal with it is licentiousness. <laughs> we throw out the whole thing. Oh, I don't do all that law stuff. No, 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 I ain't with it. Uh, the ultimate truth is uh, I have to find my own truth. I got to look within my experience because my experience isn't your experience and your experience is cool, but mine has what I need for me. And the only way for, to, for me to live my most authentic life is really for me to trust myself and to deeply look at my own experience to move forward intelligently. I know it may not seem like it, but I'm still Mark chapter 2, verse 27. So there's two ways. One is we score keep. The other is we throw the whole thing out. The scorekeeper uh, uh, relies or rests on their moral integrity. They rely on, on, on their ability to, to, to maintain or to, to perform up to par. And as long as they can perform up to par, they have boldness. Maybe not as much humility. And when they can't perform up to par, they have humility. Not as much boldness. The scorekeeper struggles to be both bold and humble because their self 
uh, determination, their ability to kind of locate or define themselves at any moment depends on their score. How right are they? How good are they? This is the thing. So this is something that's a big, big, big deal. I think it's important to note that whether we are uh, moral conformist scorekeepers or uh, whether we subscribe to self-discovery, looking deep within, Jesus reveals that both of these things will ultimately fail us. The book of John is so incredible. We get to see what it's like when Jesus encounters the religious elite. Like when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, like he knows the law, he looks to party, he knows the words, he speaks the language, and Jesus tells him, you're lost. And then a chapter later, he encounters the woman at the well who's, you know, she caught up in some things. Some things are going on in her life, personally. And even her, there's this staunch of like, well, we had, we had Jacob's well. Like, this is my people's well, this is how we get down. And Jesus is still like, nope. Still lost. If you knew what I had, you would ask me for this and you'd never thirst again. Why? What does he say? He's saying that no matter where you find yourself, whether you are a, a, a struggle with moral conformity, meaning to you, the world should function a certain way. People should do a certain thing. They shouldn't veer to the left or veer to the right. We should be morally good. If you're that person and you think, well, everyone should do this, this makes it really, really, really easy uh, for you uh, to get into a situation where it's hard for you to extend grace because you yourself haven't received this grace. It's important to know that people who keep score feel like they themselves are judged very harshly. They're hard on themselves because we lack this deep rest for the soul. And the same thing on the other side for our, our self-discovery, for, for those who uh, would, would subscribe to licentiousness or this idea that, you know what, I'm throwing all of that out. None of it matters. You know, the whole law, I can't keep the law anyway. I can't do what's right anyway. I never, ever could. You know, I was really, I've never really been the kind of person that uh, abides by laws. That's really not my vibe. You ever know people like that? Yeah, all of that traditional nuclear fire, just, yeah, just not my thing. You know, monogamy, oh, so fashion, like, nah, it's just not my, like, like, this is a thing that's very popular. It's humanism, ultimately, right? It's, it's, we look within. We look to what's been created as some sense of rightness. Very dangerous. So scorekeepers won't rest because they're always keeping score. Once you start, can't stop. Once you're looking at your life and, and, and what you've done, uh, then you start looking around you and go, hey, well, that guy's not trying as hard as I am. Well, that other kid, he's not doing what I'm doing. I mean, that kid's doing anything. I only do a couple of things. You know, I'm trying. God knows my heart, right? What this reveals is a deeper, darker longing of the soul. And both of these expose what we know to be true, but don't give voice, which is there needs to be a rest that we can experience beneath 
our surface, beneath just our works, beneath just our conversation, beneath just what we are known by in our family, our relationship, and our cultural circles. There's this movie called Chariots of Fire. Uh, and I'll admit, I hadn't seen it. It came out a few decades ago. Uh, I heard about it in relates to the Sabbath and thought, okay, well, maybe Holy Spirit has something for me. So I watch it. I'm in the movies. And, I, and I, I watched this movie, which was a great movie, by the way. And the movie has these two characters. And one character is named Harold Abrams. And, and another character is Eric Little. And both of these characters are runners. And they're uh, going toward competing in the Olympic Games for Britain. And they're both great runners. They're both very fast. But Harold Abrams is this runner who has to win. He has to. Like, he just, he cannot take losing. He doesn't handle it well. He got to win. And, and, and there's this phrase that kind of sums him up. He literally says this in the movie. He says, after that gun goes off and I hear that, Pah, I've got 10 seconds to prove my existence. And so nothing else matters. He has to win. Know anybody like that? <laughs> Ever played spades with somebody like that? I'm just playing. I'm sorry. But this character, Harold Abrams, is, is, is working to be the best runner. He literally finds a coach and he goes and, and gets the coach. Like the coach is supposed to find the, the, the student. He just goes and finds. Like this guy has to win. He has the opportunity to have a love interest and he ain't even paying her no mind. He ain't paying her no attention. So he's about to leave him. Why? Because all they can think about is he has to win. He has to be the best. And, and there's this other character, Eric Little, who you, his, his, his kind of character could be summed up by the phrase as he's talking. He says this. Uh, he believes he's supposed to go into ministry and that he's supposed to go into overseas missions specifically. And his sister is saying, well, give up the racing. Just get into ministry. And he says there, I'm going to do it. I'm going to join ministry. But God made me fast. He says this. And when I run, I feel this pleasure. <laughs> he says, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Now, here's the thing. Both of them are working. Both of them are training rigorous hours. Like both of them are putting just maximum effort for us. But can you see that there's just two different things beneath the surface? One guy beneath his work, his trying to be the best, his trying to have the fastest time, underneath his work, he's still working. Working to prove himself, working to show that he has something special, that he, that he is somebody, that he is special, that he, he should be someone that people should take notice of, that he's not a joke, that he's not uh, just worthy of being forgotten, that he actually has something unique within him. So he works beneath his work. The other character, Eric Little, on the other hand, even though he's putting all the same effort, he's putting all the same training, all the same diet, all the same lifestyle of being the very fastest runner he can. But beneath his work is a sense that God has put him in this position and he's not working to be loved, but rather this is how he responds to already being accepted and loved by God who knows him so well. What we learn is it's possible to be uh, working beneath your working and it's also possible to be totally at rest beneath all of the effort and work that we expose out. I think as I have 
you know, talk about this, you know, we're always trying to make sure it hits us first. And, and, and as a speaker, and I'm, I'm holding it in pretty good now, but I, I come undone almost every time I read verse 27. And the, and the reason is because if I'm honest with you, I didn't grow up in a context where verse 27 was the highest thing I saw. I grew up in a context where there were some things you had to do to portray or to present what we wanted to say God was doing within us. I grew up in a context where you had to learn how to speak a certain language in church. And if you didn't speak that language, people would say, oh, man, you know, you got something. Just keep working on it. I grew up in a, in a kind of environment where if you didn't wear the suit, then people just assume, well, you got something, but you're just not quite ready yet. I grew up in a situation where people would actually listen to hear you speak in tongues because they wanted to use that to affirm that you really called or you really, you know, filled with the spirit. And again, I'm not vilifying any of these people, I'm not giving you names at all. But I'm telling you, I grew up in a context where verse 27 wasn't the highest esteem. It wasn't the thing that I saw, which is Jesus saying this. I don't know if you know it or not, uh, but the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. In other words, what? Uh, the gift or, or the, the concept of rest was always supposed to be a gift, never a burden. It was never God's idea uh, that following him would become a burden whereby you and I would be accused by it. It's never been God's idea uh, that the things of God would be used to keep people out of, or, keep, or prove that they're in. We've grown up in a context, y'all, where this has been vigorously uh, uh, just, just totally overhauled and, and miscommunicated and, and misdefined. Because it's given people this idea that they are accepted in God's family just because they obey. This is the thing about human religion. And you'll note, and again, we're going to keep moving, but human religion says to be accepted, you need to obey. To be accepted, you need to perform. You need to do a set of things. This is what it says. The gospel, on the other hand, the gospel of Jesus says, guess what? You're already accepted. You have already been loved. His love has already been poured out on you. Therefore, we obey in response to that. It should be noted that human religion craves rules. It craves details. It should be noted that, that if you ever find yourself, like even as we're about to be doing, like we're about to do this fast together, family, and I promise you, you are going to be tempted to be very specific. All right, well, they said we can't eat until six, uh, so uh, I can put my food in the microwave at six uh, or 5.58 if I put it on two and a half minutes. By the time I take the first bite, it'll technically be 6.01. Where they said, uh, you know, uh, we, we, we're not going to do meats and, and, and chicken, um, but I think there's a, a chicken broth that I can use, still get a little taste of that, that I can, right? Like, <laughs> I've done that, by the way. The point is, is that we'll find ourselves being so particular to the letter. This is something that we've done. I've done it. You've done it. Uh, we found ourselves trying to negotiate with God negotiate our obedience 
God says, nope, this person ain't it. And you go, well, I mean, this person is cool, you know what I'm saying? I have great conversations. I think this might work. <laughs> Anybody knows how those end? Not good. And it's because we negotiate our surrender. We negotiate the terms. Why? Because we ultimately are keeping score, which religion trains us into doing. It makes us people who are so detailed. Okay, cool. What exactly can't we do on the Sabbath? You hear Sonny preach about that last week, and then you go, okay, cool. I need to make the best Sabbath I possibly can. So you tell people, hey, uh, don't call me between the hours of 7 and 8 in the morning because I'm Sabbathing. Now, no, 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 I know you're in a bind right now, but don't you call me. I'm Sabbathing before the Lord. This is holy. I ain't here for you right now. I don't want to hear about your, your negative situations. I don't want to hear about your catastrophic emergency. No, no, no. I'm Sabbathing. Mm. And just like the disciples, just like these, these Pharisees, I'm sorry. We miss the forest for the trees. You make the Sabbath more about the laws than the actual meaning of what it was about. And this is why Jesus drops a bomb and says, hey, I don't know if you know it or not, uh, but the Sabbath was made for men as a gift. It was never supposed to be a rock to be used to knock somebody over the head with. It was always meant to be a gift. The truth is Jesus will not afflict us. And if whatever you're a part of is afflicting, it ain't Jesus. Jesus is not in the business of, 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 of heavy burdens being laid on people. That ain't him. He's not in the business of, of, of using rules and, 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 and these, these, whether pragmatic or not, these, these set of, of performances or these rules whereby one could prove that they're in. That's an us thing. Come on, how many times have you done it, right? The ones who are open spiritually, yeah, that's, they're in. That's what God is calling for, people who are open. Them closed-minded people, they out. Open-minded people are in. Oh, I got a, good, I got a better one for you. Uh, those who are trying to worship in spirit and truth. We're not just singing songs. We're trying to worship. See, we, we in. We're trying to go deeper. We want to go behind the veil. I could not, man, it was like a 10-year period where every worship service, somebody had to go behind the veil. Ain't no way everybody was going behind the veil. First, it just wasn't. It's impossible. Everybody couldn't. Just, I know all them people saying it wasn't going. Anyway, my point is, we create all of these things that, that make us feel good. They, they help our score keep. We look at, you know how, how good you feel when you start off your week with a high score at church because you went behind the veil. Sometimes it's virtual experience. It offends our score keep because we just can't get the same checkbox we could when we went to church. We were in the room. In Mark chapter 3, uh, verse 1 through 6, we'll read this real quick. You don't have it, so I'll just read it to you. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. I got to stop right there. That's an incredible line. The Pharisees, the ones who don't like Jesus, who don't believe him. The Bible says uh, they're, they're on a, it's the synagogue. This guy's there, and they're watching to see if Jesus would heal him. Not could. Even his enemies believed in him to a point. 
They didn't say, hey, we want to see if Jesus can. No, 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 no. Let's see if he's going to do it. They're trying to set a trap for him to see if he's going to do good on the Sabbath, to see if he will uphold the truest cause and purpose of the Sabbath, or to see if he will be religious and scorekeep like them. Verse 3, he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to him, is it lawful that the Sab on the Sabbath uh, to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they, the religious leaders, these Pharisees, they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched out his hand and his hand was restored. I think that's an incredible word. On the Sabbath, his hand was Sabbath. It was rest. It was restored. A big part of the whole purpose of the Sabbath. His hand was restored. Verse six says, and the Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians, a, a group of people they hated. Just so they could figure out how to destroy this man, Jesus. The truth is in this story, it's not the, just the man's hand that's withered. It's the Pharisees hearts. It's a withered heart that struggles to even accept the truth of the Sabbath just in order to keep these rules, in order to push these rules forth. And you have to ask yourself the same thing. When you find yourself getting more upset about the score you keep, well, how's my wife saying that to me? I pay the bills around here. <laughs> I just took her out on a date night. I let her get the big piece of chicken, whatever it is, right? Do you find yourself keeping score in your relationships? And this is how you know if you keep score. Do you know what they're doing? <laughs> and what they say about you? Like, are you locked in on, okay, yeah, so, you know, I, I'm, I've given this amount, I've shared this with them, I've let them come over my house this many times. They only invited me once, but they only came over four times. They come up my house, I let them in the whole house. They, they keep me in the foyer. <laughs> Whatever it is. Right? I, I went to go give them a hug twice and they gave me that stiff arm. And I don't, you know, I hugged them, but they gave me no. Whatever it is. It gets deep or shallow depending on where you are, what you got going on. But the, the, the concept of it is the same. This suffocates our ability to receive true ultimate rest that comes from Jesus because grace which we get by Jesus is getting what we know we don't deserve everybody knows that but what happens when you aren't getting what you think you deserve right you think you deserve it you think they should they should do it do they, they don't know? They don't know how good you are? They don't know how hard you work for them? They don't know that you've changed so much for them that you aren't who you used to be? You've made all these sacrifices for this relationship or this community or this job or this endeavor, whatever it is. So 
Jesus gets angry, and I don't, I, don't, I don't know about you, but I've seen Jesus get angry with different people in the scriptures. Uh, this one seems a little different, and it, and it seems like the reason his anger is so deeply kindled isn't because uh, uh, of what they don't know. It's, it's because what they're doing is perverting something he meant to be beautiful and a gift, and they have, have weaponized the Sabbath, or in this case, weaponized the law. And the truth is, we do it to this day. We're about to start a fast for a week. I guarantee you the devil's going to get somebody to weaponize the fast. Somebody's going to look at somebody else and go, mm-mm, nope. She had chicken before six. She ain't saved for real. She don't mean it. He said he was going to give up scrolling. He said he wasn't going to be on Facebook. He liked that post. I saw it. You think I ain't catch that happy birthday? If you and I aren't careful, we can weaponize what God has meant as a tool to replenish, to to repair the diminished, to to actually cause us to take in the goodness of God and what he's done for us just because we'd rather focus on what we can do than what he has done. So when Mark 2 says, Jesus said that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You could put fast in there, right? Fasting is a gift for us. Man wasn't made for the fast. Fast was made for us. It was to help us. It's a tool for us to use. It's something that's a gift for us to be replenished, for us to create a space and have that space filled with more of God. It's not a, a, a negative thing. I know it might feel uncomfortable. I know you might be hungry. Someone's making noises, but it's a gift. It's beautiful. It's presented to us by loving, caring God. Verse 28 says this, and this is, this is, this is it. This is the crowning scripture here. So the son of man is the Lord, even of the Sabbath. Now, Jesus, we thought you couldn't say anything else. Like you forgave sin to start the chapter off. And then you were kind of the table with sinners. You were hanging with people uh, that that we we would think you wouldn't want to hang out with. People who are sinners, not people who are thought to be the elite among society. You're hanging with tax collectors and and harlots. And and, and this is who you're consorting with. And then his disciples aren't fasting. Jesus, what's going on? Why don't your disciples fast? And then you end the chapter with this phrase. Yeah, this son of man, this man is God of the Sabbath. What? (laughs) Like, you cannot like Jesus, right? Jesus can't be just cool to you. He's either everything that he says he is or he's a lunatic. There's no middle. Either Jesus is the man that is God or he is crazy out of his mind. You hear what he's telling them? People who know the law. People who who know vehemently the Old Testament heritage of Israel with God is is, is comes down to one basic principle about about God, which is this: there is one God. There is one God, and this man says, "The Son of Man is the Lord, even of the Sabbath." In other words, this thing y'all talking about the Sabbath. Guess what? I, I wrote the rules for it. I came up with it. When the Bible says that God made everything, right? Each day he made it and it was good. And then on the seventh day, the Bible says he rested. 
Now, there's some speculation about this. I think it's, it's interesting. People who are not theologians, <laughs> people who are comedians, people who don't know God nor love him come up with, well, you know, why would God rest? Like, the guy get tired? Why, why would he rest? That doesn't make any sense. Well, the truth is God rested on the seventh day because there was nothing else to do. The Bible says the way he created everything, it reproduced after its own kind. So on the seventh day, God rested because he had made everything good. It was very good. Everything was set up. The structure was in place. This thing is going to keep rolling. And the Bible says that there was nothing else for God to do. He ceased from working. Not because he was tired, not because he had expended so much energy, but because he had made what he needed to make and it was good and there was nothing else to do. And then Jesus comes later on and says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. And how could Jesus say this? Because Jesus knows that he will die for our sins, that he is going to pay the penalty for your and my sin debt. And after he's done, he's going to say to telestai or it is finished. Meaning what? There is nothing else you need to do to receive the deep rest and the longing that you and I have to be totally accepted and in relationship with the God of the universe. So God rested because there was nothing else to do. Uh, we're told to rest in the Sabbath. Why? Because uh, when we cease from working is when we get to realize, just like Eric Liddell, like that character, the truth is what we want and what we need has already been provided for us. And sometimes it takes a minute for us to cease from trying to do it ourselves for us to be able to grasp the rest that has always belonged to us. So God rested. Jesus rested. Why? Because once there's nothing else to do, it gets to cease from work. Family, we got to try. We got to be so committed to what God has said about who he is. Like, this is why the gospel message has to be preached. This is why there has to be someone that says, hey, guess what? I see you striving. I see you working beneath your work. But you got to know someone else has come and has done the work for you to experience the deep rest, the REM, if you will, of the soul. That there is one who has come and done what no one else can do. The ultimate Sabbath isn't a day you set aside, isn't a time where you stop doing stuff. It's when you in your heart at any moment of any day, just like in Hebrews where, where the Bible says today, if you hear it, don't harden your hearts. Your Sabbath could be here, could be right now. It, it's, it, whenever you decide to cease from working a better situation for yourself and you lay back and rest in the arms of King Jesus. What happens to our marriages, what, what happens to our families, what happens to our, our church community when we become a Sabbath people? A people that learn to rest deeply in what Jesus has done as the Lord of the Sabbath ultimately. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 says this. We're almost done, I promise. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 says this. Come to me, all who labor, and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. <clears throat> Come to me, all who labor, and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. 
and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. I I don't know another way to say it. I, I feel almost like I need to just repeat. Come to me. Come to me. Come to me. Come to me. Like, come to me. Like, there's such an internal uh, mechanism inside us that just keeps working. Oh, this didn't go right. I need to work harder. This person said I'm not this yet. I need to work harder. Uh, uh, this person seems to think that I'm, I'm, I'm not there yet. I need to work harder. And there's something inside us that when we, when we see something that, that God clearly wants to do with us and we, and we can't just jump just quantum leap into that spot we just think let's work harder let's let's put our head down let's put more energy and more attention and hear me i'm not saying that as christ believers we don't need to work okay we definitely do but there is a rest beneath our work that helps us work better come unto me this is Jesus talking. This is the Lord of the Sabbath. This is the man who is God saying, hey, I came so that you can experience a deep rest in your soul. Not that wondering, do they really understand me? Do they really get me? Does this place care about me? Does this group, does this family, does this relationship, does this job, whatever it is. And this is something all of us are going to fight with. All of us are going to struggle. All of us are going to experience this unrest of the soul. This disquieted where our souls are, are yelling out within us. Does anybody care? Does anyone notice I'm hurt? Yes, I'm cool, but I'm hurting. Does anybody see? Yeah, the score is being kept. I'm hanging in there on the scoreboard. I'm giving it a, a valid fight. But the truth is I'm dying inside. Does anyone notice? And the truth is, there is one who has always seen you. There's one who's never lost you in a crowd. There's one who's never seen or never not seen what you've done, what you've given, what you've lost, what you've sacrificed. There's always been one who is your Sabbath, who is your rest, who doesn't uh, afflict you or, or burden you with a bunch of crazy responsibilities. He's only giving you one thing to do, and that is just to believe in him. Jesus doesn't afflict us. He, the only burden he puts on us is the responsibility of belief, of faith. Not performing. Not trying to be a, a, a good little Christian or a good wife or a good daughter, a good husband, good son. Not a good church member, not a good uh, a, a, a position holder. Not a little good missionary, a little good greeter, a little good evangelist, a prophet, a pastor, whatever. It is. No, like, the, like, like the, we have to get to a point where we can... Believe that God is the one that ultimately gives us our rest. And here's the thing. He doesn't do it easily. Like Jesus entered into utter restlessness to afford you and I a deep rest of the soul. He steps into a chaos we would never know. We would never understand. We would never even perceive. And yet he easily, freely gives us access to his rest. So how do we, how do we rest? How do we do it? <laughs> like if you're like me, it's like, okay, all right, I'm resting now. Is it working? 
Is this, is this thing on? All right, God, I'm officially rested. I got my Bible, I got my notebook. My son's in the other room. Here it is, me and you, we're resting. And go. You know, sometimes with me, I don't know about anybody else. In my life, I think the biggest enemy of my rest is the things that I can do well. Because the things that I can do well <laughs> leads me to think I should do them well and do more of them and work a better future for myself. I actually believe I'm honoring God when I do the things that he's given me to do well. <laughs> and sometimes it's your good works that are interfering with your ability to receive his better works for you. Sometimes it's hard to rest because you can't turn off what you've done. Good or bad. See, here's the thing about a scorekeeper. It goes up, it goes down. You keep it either way. If you've been great this week, hey, then you're walking on sunshine. But if it's been a hard week, if you've done what you said you wouldn't do, if you've thought what you swore you wouldn't think, then it, it steals, it suffocates your ability to receive deep rest. It limits the experience with Jesus to one of transaction or folktale. He becomes a, a wise teacher, someone with good things to say, but who can't actually engage or interrupt or inter interfere with your life. Why? Not because he doesn't want to, but because the truth is you're blocking his works by looking at your own, good or bad. Father, may we, even this week, learn what it means to experience deep rest and a ceasing from working, a ceasing from trying to control the narrative of our lives or trying to shape the narrative or trying to shape who we are and what we're supposed to do. What, can we take our hands off the wheel of, and, and, and experience the goodness that we can only have in you? I'm wrapping it up, y'all, I promise. <clears throat> the last point, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to be done. The, 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 the tagline for this particular series uh, is, is rhythm and flow, and we're trying to move towards Christ-centered and a spirit-filled existence, right? Christ-centered, spirit-filled. And, 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 and Pastor Sonny did an incredible job uh, of laying this out for the first couple of weeks. If you haven't seen those, if you're new and you're just joining us, please go back and check those out. Please go back and watch those. They were incredible, phenomenal messages. You can check them out, podcast, go back to YouTube. You know, not right now. But after this, go back and check those out, right? Uh, the, 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 one of the, the most incredible things as, as I was studying this, uh, Christ-centered, Holy Spirit-filled. Christ-centered, Holy Spirit-filled. It seems like these are like two things we got to kind of like balance, like we got to, you know, kind of hold them in tandem. Like, you know, you, you're almost like a seesaw. It's like, okay, I'm trying to, do I get that? Do it, is it, are we in the middle? You know, right? Am I Christ-centered? And, and is the Holy Spirit filling me, like fully, right? Uh, I come from <laughs> Pentecostal denomination where they would do uh, examples and illustrations and they would put his hand over the cup 
and, and say, hey, is the, water, is the cup filled with water? And they said, no. Well, how do you know? It's because there's still some room left in the cup. And he would submerge the cup in water and then hold it up and say, is the cup filled? And they said, well, how do you know? It's because there isn't any room for anything else. It's totally filled. And this is the kind of life that we want to get to, where we're Christ-centered. The theology is right. Our missiology is right, right? We're in the book. At the same time, the Holy Spirit has total use of us. He can, he can say whatever. He can do whatever. He can bring anything to our, our mind and our remembrance. He can use us in any way he sees fit. And as I was looking this up, I, I started looking at these pastors. And I want to I share with you, and I promise this is the last thing. We can be done. It says, uh, Holy Spirit. Now, this is John 14, 26. This, these are, this is just the word about the Holy Spirit. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Who is I? Jesus. All right, let's read that this way. Uh, so the, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in Jesus' name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that Jesus has said to you. All right, John 15, 26. But when the helper comes, whom Jesus will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about Jesus. Me is Jesus. He will bear witness about Jesus. Chapter 16, verse 13. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Chapter, uh, uh, verse 14, he will glorify me. Me is who? Jesus. The Holy Spirit will glorify Jesus and he will take what is Jesus's and declare it to us. What does this mean? It means the Holy Spirit is the most Christ-centered person on the planet. That's what it means. It means the Holy Spirit is the most Christ-centered being here today. The idea that, that we got to lose something or that this is this balancing act, guess what? If we're full of him, we're Christ-centered as well because the Holy Spirit is going to do what? Make sure Christ is lifted up. So if you and I are experiencing the rest that we get in Jesus and, and being embodied and empowered and enabled by the spirit of the living God, by the spirit of truth, then you and I will also definitely be Christ-centered if we're fully submitted to him. What does this mean, family? It means that you and I have been marked, have been called, have been set aside for not just a, a come unto me, but a go ye therefore, <laughs> right? A go ye into all the world. Like you and I get the invitation to come and then get the privilege to be sent out by the power of the Holy Spirit to carry that same Lord of the Sabbath. It means not only are we just waiting to get a deep rest from God, but it means at a certain point, God may use you to become an entrance for deep rest for somebody else. It means at a certain point, God's going to use you the same way Jesus healed the man with the withered hand. God will use you to have a conversation. He's going to use you to share some things, maybe to open up your word, maybe to just have a look of love and a hug. But the rest of God should not end with just you receiving it. It should flow freely from you. Family, I'm convinced that there's some people in my life that I haven't loved well because I was so focused on my works that I wasn't experiencing the deep rest that we get through Jesus. 
There's people, I think I would have responded differently. I think I would have said something different. I, I, I would have I I done something. I would have been more sensitive, more aware if I was more focused on Jesus and less focused on my scorekeeping or me trying to throw out the scoreboard. We're about to start this week of fasting, and here's some questions to help you. And I didn't make it. We got it from my sister Lindsay. We even sent them out on an email earlier this week. But what's your fasting plan for this week? What are you going to abstain from? And keep in mind, the same way Jesus says that, hey, the Sabbath was made for man, not made for the Sabbath. Guess what? The fasting was made for man and not man for fasting. So let's not make fasting God. Let's not make fasting the Lord, right? Ultimately, this is about Jesus and our being fully formed or Christ being fully formed in us. So what does that look like for you? What are you going to abstain from? What are you going to not participate in this next week? Even beyond the things we've sent out for you and your situation, you know your crutches, you know your coping mechanisms, you know what you lean on when times are rough and when things get uncomfortable for you. What's your fasting plan? What are you, gonna, what are you, what are you not going to do? And then what's your feasting plan? What things will you fill that space with? Time with God, prayer with God, worship, study, whatever it is. Time with your family in his presence, whatever it is. Let's have that. Let's have that. Write it down. Let's, let's, let's be clear about our expectations of God. And then thirdly, what questions do you have before God? Like what things would you love for God to just shine light on, for just, just to illuminate your understanding? Hear me. Your good works don't make him answer. All right. Don't think he has to answer because you're fasting. So he has to do what you want. No, he doesn't. He's God. God. He chooses. But it may help you to have a clear ask for God, something that's clear. It may help you even distill that out. And then four, lastly, who are you praying for? Like, who are you like? Taking before God for salvation or for healing. Like, who are you advocating for, interceding for? These are some things to know, some things to have in uh, your heart, even maybe on your notebook or your paper, whatever you have. Your fasting plan, your feasting plan, some questions you might have before God. And then who are you praying for? Who, would, who are you interceding to know him? Again, he's not forced to answer, but this helps us be open, be ready, right? I pray that this would be an incredible week for you, that this would be an incredible time where you are deep in his presence and you experience the REM, the, the rapid eye movement, if you will, of the soul. A deep sense that you have been accepted, that you have been loved. Just as the quote says, you don't need to do anything. You don't need to change in any way for God to love you. But you will change if you intend to love him back. God bless you. I hope you have an incredible week. Thank you for listening to the Detroit Church Podcast. We'd love you to subscribe, like, and rate. And if you're not already, you can follow us on social media by searching for Detroit Church.